So welcome back to the Brendan Option. You're most welcome to join us as we come to you today from Westport in County Mayo. I'm Father Ger Crook, uh, joined today as always by the ever impressive Father Brendan. How are you, Father Brendan? Ever impressive. <laughs> <laughs> So where are you going to take us today? Uh, I, I, I thought perhaps a, a Susan of Shakespeare, just a, just a, a little taste. Oh, bringing it up, a, okay. A, a, a spoonful from Julius Caesar. I was, ju- I was just meditating on this, on this lately and I thought it might inspire us to start with. It's uh, one of the spe- short speeches of Brutus in the play. I can horsewear him. For he loves to hear that unicorns may be betrayed with trees and bears with glasses. Elephants with holes, lions with toils, and men with flatterers. But when I tell him he hates flatterers, he says he does, being then most flattered. Let me work, for I can give his humour the true bent, and I will bring him to the capital. And of course we know what happened in the capital. Poor Caesar. A teacher I had once... Uh, on the Ides of March, used to insist that the whole class stand and said three. three this, the, the, this was a teacher we both know. <laughs> uh, we had to say three our Hail Marys, one in Irish, one in Latin, one in English for the soul of Julius Caesar. Wow. <laughs> oh, he's a great teacher. He was, he was a bit mad, but he was <laughs> the best teachers usually are slightly demented. Yeah, he was a, he was a great teacher. And I, I, I like that quotation for a number of reasons, but one of them is, is, is where it's a commonplace about, about Shakespeare. He was, he was a tremendous and classic psychologist. His knowledge of people is, is one of the most amazing things in the place. He just this tremendous knowledge of people mm. and, and of their strengths and, and of their darknesses. I'm afraid he was quite Augustinian. And you know, there's a whole debate as to the, how Catholic his imagination was because Shakespeare, had, he came of, of recusant stock. You know, the Catholic stock that had never, never gone, it had stayed with the old faith. It had never, the recusants, the ones who, who, who wouldn't take the oath. And, Do you uh, believe he was secretly a Catholic? I don't know. So, so the, the case is made, and it's made passionately, and it's made cleverly. I'm inclined to be dubious, but I certainly do think that you can come away from hearing the case made feeling that there was a strong Catholic influence in his background. I don't, I don't know if there's any great doubt about that. Mm. Yeah. But he, here he's, he's, he's just talking about how... So it's as the mystics used to talk. If the devil can sway you with the obvious brute... Uh, pleasures, you know, the uh, sex being one, money's another. Uh, it gets a bit more refined. You know, power is more refined. Power is more refined. But then they're what the mystics call the manlier objects. So the devil will, he will ply you with dreams of, of great achievements, as they say in Irish, echte. It's a great word, echt, a mighty deed, like Cúchulain or Fionn Macúil, the great deeds of the Celtic. The great, well, they were pre-Celtic, the, the great primordial, the, 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 the Celtic hero, the old heroes. Mm. Uh, and echt, you know, you're the one to do great things. And the mystics all warn us of it. Yeah, you can spend your life dreaming of doing great things for God and you never do anything. Because you're waiting for the great thing. And in the meantime, all the small things are passing you by. And you've become so absolutely debilitated by your endless peccadillos. They've eaten away at you like little piranha. 
you're absolutely useless by the time the, the great thing comes along. You see, you, you, you're, you're morally and spiritually uh, weakened. You're bled dry by these parasites. And here Brutus talks about how he'll get around Caesar, who was a formidable man and a man of tremendous charm and ruthlessness. They estimate that Caesar, I don't know if, if Shakespeare knew this, Caesar killed up to a million in Gaul. Wow. Think of the populations of those times. Caesar killed up to a million in Gaul. He scandalised even Ro some Roman opinion. Up to a million. It was a holocaust. Mm. This is not just men, this is women and children. Of the so-called barbarian tribes he, he, he conquered. But Shakespeare certainly knew that Caesar was a man of tremendous gifts. So this isn't... This isn't a catcher going to bell easily. They're going to kill him. And, and he has Brutus say, oh, he loves all these stories about trickery. And he loves to hear about how even the most formidable animals, the unicorns, perhaps the rhinoceros, the, the lions, whatever, can be tricked. And then he loves to, be, to hear how great men can be, can be won over by flatterers. And he'll laugh at that. Because I'll tell him next that he hates flattery. And of course, the implication there is you're even greater than them. And he loves that, being then most flattered by his hatred of flattery. You see, the Shakespeare, he, he, he's Catholic or not, he has a profoundly Christian uh, bent, to use his own <laughs> word. He has, a he, has a, he has a tremendous understanding of human nature. And of course, he, Protestantism was profoundly Augustinian. Luther was profoundly Augustinian, as, as, as was Calvin, and Calvin even more so. You know, Chesterton would say, I think it was, I think it was Chesterton who said that the, the heresies all originate in one tremendous insight, which is just pressed too hard. It's usually a truth, but it's pressed too hard, you know? It's, Why it's, is it important, though, to have an understanding of human nature? Oh, to this, be this, faith? Well, because this depravity, watch your, uh, wait till I see, um, um, Mad Men, that series, yeah. Suits, watch all these, billions, watch all these programs. They're endlessly rehearsing the same thing. And some of them, oh, wait, let's see, Spacey. Of course, you can't pray Spacey now, Spacey. Um, uh, House of Cards. Better still, uh, or just as good, go back to the original House of Cards, the English one with Ian Richardson back in the early 90s, which was hugely talked about when it came out. Mm -hmm. Is these manlier objects, these temptations, we are tremendously, Luther would have said completely depraved. We can only be redeemed by God. Aquinas would have said, no, 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 we're basically good, we're like a ruined temple, nature, her grace perfects nature, nature isn't completely depraved, uh, it is riven with evil, it is diseased, but not completely depraved. Uh, Luther would have said, no, we're, de we're depraved. And I mean, you can see his insight, you can, you can see that we have, not just needs, we have, we have terrible appetites. We wish to be like God. And we will do terrible things to get there. And that means that we are endlessly open to manipulation by those who are even cleverer than us. I used to tell the kids in, 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 in school, when, when, well, those of them that were awake in my class, I used to tell them, listen, if you want to learn about human nature, Tell me which industry knows most about human nature. And I, I have to say, I, I'll have to tell you straight, nowadays it's not the breeze. I mean, a good confessor used to be a prize, but you'll do well to find one now. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry, and I don't mean to be offensive or nasty. 
I'm sorry, but I'm afraid a good confessor is almost as rare as a Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the architects would tell us maybe we made a mistake giving up the thatch. Those houses were lovely and warm. <laughs> we went to slated, un, uninsulated stone houses in Ireland. <laughs> they must have been freezing in those houses that were built from the 30s, right? A good confessor is as rare now as a good Thatcher, or as rare as a good pint, maybe. You know, we're forgetting all the old crafts. Okay, well, actually, now we're starting to resurrect them with all this artisan stuff. Maybe now we'll have artisan Catholicism, and maybe the priests will go back to actually brewing their own <laughs> and, and getting, you know, getting back to acquiring the old skills again, that tremendous mastery of human nature that tremendous, the wisdom of the church, its knowledge of human nature. I always say about the church, she doesn't, we haven't, not she, I shouldn't say that, because the, 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 the church does, the church does know these things, but the, the church at any one time in history, in its servants and representatives, and that's an awful lot of people, it can forget its skills. And I, I, we don't know nearly as much about God as we should. But one thing you can be sure of finding if you go back into the vast attic that is the church's memory will be a tremendous knowledge of human nature. A tremendous knowledge. Even Stalin said it once when one of his friends, uh, well, not one of his friends, one of his, uh, it was towards the end of his life. He, he tried to study for the priesthood, you know. Mm. But towards the, towards the, end, the end of his life, uh, he asked one, one young man who was working in his office, what does, do your parents do? And our, what does your father do? And, and the young man was sh kind of shaking, and he said, my father's a priest. Because the Orthodox priest married, and of course Stalin had shot half of them. And, and Stalin actually didn't react badly, you know, and he puffed his pipe and he said, I'll tell you what, he said, what priests know best is people. Yeah, he said, I always found that, you know. He said, they don't know other things nearly as much as they think, but he said, what priests know best is people. Oh Lord, if we even knew that. <laughs> It'd be, it'd be a start. Mm. But I'll tell you what knows them. I'll tell you what knows them. I know, I know, I, I go, you used to sit in my class, you know, I go round and round and round, but I do get to the point eventually. <laughs> For those who are still alive. That was a good journey. That was a good journey. <laughs> what priests know best is people, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what knows them. The new priests, the advertising industry knows them. It knows them. It studies them. It, with an unsleeping eye, yeah. it knows them. To the extent that we're barely able to control the extent to which we're being studied. What's all this, what's all this, why are we now being terrorized by all this um, GDPR legislation? For goodness sake, sure, it's terrorizing charities and, and all this, but it actually was started because it was trying to control these enormous corporations. It was trying to control these enormous companies that are studying us and studying us to the extent that, I mean, you, you know, you go looking for something on the internet and next thing people will say, you, you start to notice all these ads coming, coming up over the following week, like, you know? It, I've had that happen to me a few times, it's bizarre. Yeah, they say they have it under control, but I don't know about that. But even like, you know, the club cards you get in supermarkets, like they, they're all, you have one and you, you scan it every time you do your shopping. Mm. That all that information is going in to see how you shop, yeah. following the way you do things and what you, what yeah. you're buying. Yeah. It's, it's extraordinary. I'll tell you something. One one of the problems nowadays is that we have been made so sure of ourselves. We're all our own Caesars. 
But there's always a Brutus out there who knows how to get us to the capital so that we can be butchered. Nobody's that smart. Nobody's that smart. Right? There's always somebody after you. There's always somebody smart if you're going to play that game. And we have never had more going for us. We're living longer. We have better housing conditions. The poorest person in Ireland would have been regarded as a wealthy man or woman by his ancestors 200 years ago. Or 100 years ago. If an unemployed man in Dublin had his great-grandfather come back, the great-grandfather would think that his descendant was doing well and was living high on the hog. Mm. I'm just saying that. I'm not excusing the problems in our society. I'm just saying that. And yet, for all our accomplishments, for all our polish and our worldly wisdom and our knowledge and the way in which we've thrown out tradition and we've thrown out the voices of the past and we've thrown out the elders and we've thrown out all of this, right? For all of our confidence, we're being led by the nose in a hundred different ways. We're being convinced of a thousand manlier objects. Sure, what's, what's the whole politically correct thing? What's the whole... Um, the, the transgender thing, all that stuff. It's all the manlier object stuff. The virtue signaling, everything, mm. you know? And what is it? What is it that they know about us? That we like to think we've beaten. We don't need it anymore. Eh? Need what? Oh, they found a need in us. They have found a, a yawning depth an endless cry for this thing that would frighten you inside yourself if you could hear it. Ultimately, ultimately, it's a cry that can't be satisfied the side of the grave. It's always there. Is this tremendous, is that we are, as Benedict XVI said uh, as a theologian in one of his books, we, man is a monad dyadically inclined. We are using the language of, I think, sociology. And we are, the individual is by his or her very nature inclined towards the other. We have a wound on our bodies since we were born. It's like a tribal mark. Mm. Again, you don't see this anymore, but when I was a young seminarian in Maynooth, the missionary sisters, the, the, the African sisters and fathers who were there studying, this was 1980, 40 years ago, uh, they had these tribal marks on their faces. You don't see it anymore on the young Africans. I don't know, has that passed? And is it a thing of the past now? It could be four bumps. They were, it would be done with a little poison or something. You know, I looked at them with fascination, but apparently an African from that region would read it like a, like a book. It's like a barcode. Showed what tribe you're from. Yeah? And we, you, we all have a tribal mark. It's, it's, uh, it's there. I don't know that plastic surgery can correct it. It's called your belly button. Your navel, and it reminds you of your mortality, your humanity, and that for nine months, give or take, you were completely dependent on the slightest whim of another human being who could have poisoned you with the drink she took, who could have poisoned you with uh, something she smoked, who could have poisoned you without meaning to with some, something that was in the water or something, you know, in the environment she was in, or because she was starving or because perhaps the, tr the poor woman was a drug addict or something. You see where I'm going with this? We are 
reminded by that all our lives of something that we're now trying to forget. I don't need others. I am Caesar. I'm Spartacus. <laughs> Except that Spartacus was a rebel <laughs> and he ended up on a cross. There's a high price for freedom. And so what I'm asking, to, first of all, what I'm saying, what I'm, 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 I'm trying to tease out in this is, our human need for the other, this tremendous need, like all tremendous needs, is also a weakness, also a source of profit for others, a source of enormous uh, interest to those who wish to sell us things or those who wish to destroy us, of anxiety to those who love us, because it can lead us down all sorts of wrong paths. We hate flatterers. We are being flattered all the time. The media are masters at it. They're brilliant. Sometimes they are, actually. They forget themselves and, 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 and they're really quite crude about it. But most of the time they're quite subtle about it. You make your own decisions. Nobody tells you what to do. Nobody tells you how to make up your mind. Yeah. I remember an ad when I was a kid and there was this man and he took the top off his boiled egg in the morning and he was taking his egg runny, slightly runny, which I must say I, 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 a taste I share. And he, he had his toast cut into soldiers, you know, this little strips of toast beside him. So he took up his first strip, uh, first strip of toast. And he was, I think, about to, to do it. I think this is how it went. And one voice on one side of the table said, no, Tim, uh, eat your toast with your egg. No, Tim, dunk your egg. Uh, you know, it went back and forward as to how he was supposed to do this. And in the end, he did something completely different. And they, the thing, it was a clever ad. And a cheap ad to make. It was very clever. Uh, and up underneath came, nobody tells Tim Smith what to think. He reads the Times. <laughs> well, <laughs> duh. <laughs> I, there's Brutus. You know, there's Brutus. How does it go? But when I tell him he hates flatterers, he says he does. Being then most flattered. <laughs> we have a huge... Why don't we just name this and we'll be safer? I mean, I used to ask in class, hands up all those of you who don't give a damn what anyone thinks of them. And then you could be sure that the guys who put their hands up were the ones who most cared what everyone else thought about them because they wanted everyone else to think, uh, as aristocrats down the ages have always known, is that um, you become the most interesting when you affect a studied disinterest in those around you. That makes you instantly interesting to them. We need others. We care, we do care what others think about us. We care passionately what others think about us. Jordan Peterson would say, would say to us that actually only sociopaths don't care what others think of them. And you know, there are a few of them around, not in big numbers, but if you listen to psychologists, there are some of them, you know, they're, they're in society. They have no empathy. So they, don't, they don't care what you think of them. Do you remember what I said in the last podcast about Marx and uh, melting the solids? Bauman picks it up, uses it when he talks about liquid modernity. What were the solids? The very things that were eulogized, the very things that were praised by, by Burke. Um, the family, the local community, the small organizations, traditions, the little platoons in which people lived out their lives. My own image would be the scutch grass holding the dunes together 
I come from the coast and I see every year what the sea has done to the coast. Yeah? That's why it's so dangerous, to, as people did for generations, to take loads of sand from the foreshore. That's holding the sea out. Oh, you're, right, yeah. you're losing land every year. Mm. The storm beach is part of the protection for the land behind, for the sand dunes. This is a serious matter. It's not just a series of poetic images like this. This is huge because this atomization of society, this reduction of society to individuals, this thing that we all seem to think is, is so, is such a positive thing, is actually a lie and it is totally contrary to our human needs and totally contra contrary to our human nature. It is unnatural and the irony is that those who are most assisting in it are also most profiting from it and they are most aware of it. They are among the enduring believers in the conservative canon, which, are the, which is the advertising industry and all those who make money from people and those who seek to influence people, including revolutionaries, radical revolutionaries, who the devil is, is an excellent theologian. I mean, he, they used to say he's present at every Mass. The way things have gone lately, actually, he'd probably be a far better person to consult on theology because at least he'd be able to give you chapter and verse on what, <laughs> on what actually Catholic orthodoxy was because he spent so much time subverting it. <laughs> I'm only telling you what any advertising executive or any fairly decent competent politician knows, even, even if they're totally in favour of this. What does it mean to be needed and wanted in, in the life of faith? To understand that human nature that, that we have this within us? then to express that in faith without it being vain or prideful or, you know, affecting your humility in a way. I'm going to tell you, okay, the atheist listening now can have a good laugh at me and dismiss me as, as indulging in more, as one of my students once, once heatedly said to me, indulging in fairy science. <laughs> oh. A lecturer I had once, uh, still on the go, uh, over in Rome, a German called John Fullenbach, SVD. Now, he'd be a very liberal theologian, a fantastic teacher. I wouldn't have agreed with him in his theology, but we got on like a house on fire. Boy, could he teach. Oh, gifted teacher, gifted teacher. But he, he used to quote, I can't remember who he was quoting. He was very fond of the quotation, rumours of angels. And he used to talk about the way in which you hear the whispers of immortality. It's rustles in the most ordinary things, as, as Paddy Kavanagh, the Irish poet, said, you know, about his mother. It, it, it was a, a prayer for his, his mother, who was dead. Um, uh, Among your earthiest words, the angels stray. And one of the things, he, he used a qu quote from this writer, he used to ask was, uh, it was just an article, but it was just a lovely way with language, probably not a great theologian. Did our mothers all lie to us? Were they all liars? And our fathers, indeed, and all adults, were the all terrible liars. Because when we fell and we hurt ourselves when we were little and we wept and cried, because it was very, it's very traumatic for small children to fall. I had a stroke about two years ago, a year and a half ago, and I had to learn to walk again. And I rediscovered again how terrifying it is to walk on two legs. It's actually a very frightening thing to do but you just don't think about doing it. And when we fell and we hurt ourselves, and if you, you remember, I had a terrible fear of falling. Mm -hmm. And when we hurt ourselves, our, our mothers would pick us up and, and they, would, they would kiss us and they would kiss the, the, you know, the, the greys. And then they would beat the bad ground for hurting us. 
and they jolly of us out of our fear. And what would they keep saying to us? Okay, they would keep repeating this. This should be carved on great public buildings, which is one of the great things, one of the mighty things that parents say to children. And it is a neacht in its own right, a mighty deed, because you're infusing the child with what's mistakenly called self-confidence which is really not simply self-confidence, but a confidence in oneself. And I would argue a confidence in God. What do they say to you? It'll all be all right. But these sacred, life-giving words, it'll be all right. And your men ask, Fulhambach used to, used to ask, were our mothers liars? This is a profound question. I'm, I'm not, I'm, this isn't a foolish question. Is all of humanity liars? Is, uh, are liars? Is, is Professor Dawkins a liar? Because I'm sure he told his children that. Well, you know, he said, oh, well, it's, a, you know, it's child abuse to bring up a child uh, as a Catholic or a Christian because you're abusing their intellect. And he said, well, what about Santa? Oh, Santa's, Santa's harmless. But hold on, fair enough. Okay, I, I see that point. But Santa is really an extension of, the, of this thing. I, like, that's not nothing. It's where you pick a child up and, and they've had a traumatic experience and you tell them it'll be all right. I mean, aren't you a liar if you're an atheist? Oh, what? It'll be all right, but all right, let's say it's 100 years ago. It'll be all right, but, you know, you, you might get TB and then you'll die. You know, so you could be dead next year, but it'll be all right for the next few minutes anyway. You say that to a small child and see, see, see what currency that is. All holy hell will break loose in the house if you thought there was weeping and gnashing of teeth before. Well, you're going to say that to a little kid? What sort of a monster says that to a little kid? You're not going to say that to a little kid, and you don't even believe it, you liar. Because you weren't a liar when you said that to the kid. You're a liar now. You're losing your nerve. You preached. You, you spoke great wisdom. You, you, gave, you, you imitated our Father in heaven when you said to that little kid, it'll be all right. And now you're losing your nerve. You're losing your courage. Oh, maybe there's no God. Maybe there's this. So what do you say that to the kid for? It'll be all right. You know he's going to die. And he's going to rot. That's all right. That's going to be okay, is it? I mean, that's, that's nice, cuddly warm. You come off it. That kid has just realized something. Don't play games with him. The kid has just looked over the cliff into the abyss. And all it took was a fall and a grace. And you're going to tell him that it's all all right. And you are going to tell him that. And you're right to tell him that because it is going to be all right. But not if you're going to go around telling him that all he needs is himself, when he wouldn't even exist without you, when nobody would have picked him up and kissed his knee and beaten the bad ground, when nobody would have said the sacred life-giving words, when nobody would, give him the, would have given him the sloppy, messy, untidy, mistake-ridden parenting, the, the blessed parenting, the human parenting, that you've given them and are giving them. And that still wouldn't be enough. What, when you're around a deathbed, you're a priest. You've been at deathbeds. Yeah. You're around a deathbed and the, and the family are crying and they're holding on, they're holding to the hand of the person who's dead. You've seen this? I've seen it in my own family. I'm not mocking anyone. It's human, it's, it's necessary, it's proper, it's right. And they're holding, holding on, on to the thing. What are they, what are they saying to, to, to the, the dying person? What are they, what are they saying to him? Oh, don't worry, don't worry. The darkness is lovely. It'll soon have you. 
it'll be oblivion and your whole life was pointless. And then now we're going to die soon after you and nobody will remember any of us. So don't worry. <laughs> I forgot. What sort of a monster says stuff like that? Yeah. Nobody believes, I put it to you, nobody believes that. They will say to the person who's dying, we love you, we love you. Have you heard that? Mm -hmm. They keep saying we love you. So what's the point in saying you love them if there's nothing you can do for them? Somebody is drowning out in the water and everyone on the pier starts shouting, we love you, we love you. Don't want to, I don't, <laughs> get me out of this. I put it to you that there is a belief that is, I think it's indestructible in the people around that bed that it will be all right. I put that to you. I put it to you that this, that it's not just that faith is social. Our whole existence is, a, is, 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 is tied up in, in constant storytelling to each other. Constantly telling each other this in a million different ways. It's not, as Marx said, a narcotic. There are narcotics operating in this situation. The flattery, the promises that are, you know, I, do you reject Satan and all, his, and all his pomps and all his works, his empty promises, you know, his promises. You don't need God. You're a young and independent person. Study, work, acquire a technical expertise, you know. Uh, have a and, and what'll happen then? Oh, you you'll meet a lovely person, you know. And what'll happen then? Well, you'll have children. And what'll happen then? Well, you'll do really well in your career. And what'll happen then? You will retire, <laughs> and you will have a wonderful pension. And what'll happen then? Well, you'll have a very good retirement and a lovely time on your wonderful pension with your grandchildren around you. And what'll happen then? the conversation ends in embarrassment. Because we know what happens then. Mm. You end up in a nursing home sitting in a nappy, being changed twice a day, being called loved by strangers. And that's clover, by the way. It can get yeah. uglier. Yeah. And yet, there is this indestructible feeling in us that it will be all right. So what I'm arguing for today is, number one, stop taking drugs. And they're not the drugs you think I'm going to talk about. Stop soaking in all this flattery from the media. Stop soaking in all this plomos. Have you heard that word lately? There's an Irish word, tremendous word. It sounds disgusting. Explain plomos. it to our American friends. It's a Gaelic word. Soft, sticky talk. <laughs> Owl flattery. Soft, easy talk talking someone around, talking somebody into their own ruin, into their death. Stop listening to this. You know the old Irish nationalist ballad? I know it's, it's bad poetry, but it was now Noel Coward talked about the incredible emotive force of bad poetry. Um, the West's Awake, that chainless wave and lovely land, freedom and nationhood demand, be sure the great God never planned for slumbering slaves, a home so grand. Freedom takes tremendous moral and spiritual backbone. It is lonely. 
It's bracing. It's a cold, hard wind to stand in. There's no room for flattery and delusions. So what I'm arguing for here is, number one, that we name the situation we're in humanly, existentially. This tragedy that we're in, where we have these dreams, and number two, to accept that they can never be satisfied in this life. At least realize that and live with the tragedy if you cannot bring yourself to believe in God. Because I tell you, one, that you will never find an answer to this outside of God. And two, that it will be all right. And if you think I'm telling you that just to give a ridiculously plomacy answer to an angst-ridden, terrible and profound question, I am not. When I say it'll be all right, that has been bought in the torture to death of God at our hands. That's what has made it all right. That is the guarantee from the Creator. It is like the belly button. Didn't in, in the Church of Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, in, in Constantinople as it was, I think it was where the, where the Emperor sat to hear Mass, was called the Omphalos, the belly button, the navel of the world. This isn't some sort of Disney cartoon. And actually, the original Disney cartoons did have a dark edge to them. And Disney, uh, now that I mention it, the, um, the animators that they had and the, and the artists that they had back in the, in the 40s, the 30s and 40s, actually were gifted. There, there is that Brothers Grimm darkness to some of the early Disney stuff. It's not as, it's not as, as, as syrupy and soft and plomosy as we might well, think. a lot of the children's films have that. I remember being petrified of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You have a point. You do have <laughs> a point. There's a dark, sinister aspect to... I, I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. So here we are on this sea of modernity. We've never been as vulnerable. We don't have the fa family anymore to tell us our story. We don't have the extended family. Do you remember all the uncles and aunts? and the cousins out to fourth cousin that our grandparents knew off by heart in their minds. It wasn't sentimental. That, that was absolutely crucial to survival. I remember my grandfather, the Lord of Mercy, and I'm talking about going to, to America in 1915. He made the money for the passage, I think, in England. And he took ship in Liverpool in 1915, I think and went to, went to uh, America. I've looked up the Ellis Island records and at least one, if not two, John Kilcoynes did land around that time. But there were two different ones, both from the West on two different ships. I'm not sure which one was him. And I, I remember saying to him as a boy, oh, Granddad, that must have been so frightened. Did you know anyone there? And he, he had a way, it was, I think he had inherited from Irish or something. It was a, a very sort of a, I don't know, very formal or deliberate way of saying things, you know. It was, my uncle had a shop in Chicago and my uncle's son had such and such a thing. And he started naming out all of these relations very deliberately. He started naming them out. And uh, he hadn't gone into the unknown <laughs> like Brendan did. He had actually landed in the middle of an armed camp. There were a whole web of relations who were there already. 
and who were expecting him because he had written to them. Yeah. And his parents had written to them. Look after Johnny. <laughs> Am I making sense <laughs> yeah. here? Yeah. We have, we're de- gradually dispensing with that. Now, we may, be, we may have been driven back to it purely through necessity and that people can't afford childcare, so they've had to discover grandparents <laughs> all over again. But again, you, you, you see what I'm getting? We are terrifyingly vulnerable here. Mm. We've, uh, we've rediscovered community a bit. People will talk about the, you know, they've, they've, the great neighbours on housing estates, but we've such, such a cult of privacy now, because neighbours, where you have a real community, it tends to be very intrusive and controlling. And we didn't want that anymore. We wanted to maximise personal freedom. We wanted the family brought down right to the nuclear family, paired right back. We didn't want to be told what to do by in-laws, and we didn't want to be told to do by grandparents, whatever it was, and all that control. And the price of that is keeping them out. So you have, you have this neighbourliness, you have this you have this sort of artificial ersatz community. Uh, what I think, is it, uh, I can't remember, is it Robert Putnam, the, the, the writer of Bowling Alone, the American academic who wrote that book, Bowling Alone, back in uh, 2000, which was a, a sort of a map of the breakdown of, of small-scale society in America. It had a huge influence. Uh, Bertie Ahern, I remember at the time, was a, he was a big admirer of Putnam. Um, it, it was a big worry for a lot of politi- a, a lot of genuine politicians was the breakdown of society, the little platoons, the breakdown of the little platoons of the small social units. It was likely having it was costing the state a fortune, for example, in that the extended family tended to look after people. It was much better at caring for people, and 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 now the state, you know, the state was having to do to do a lot of it. But Putnam, I think it was, I think it was Putnam, maybe Francis Fukuyama, I think it was Putnam, who said, um, he described Neighbourhood Watch as sociological astroturf, suitable only where the real thing won't grow. And Neighbourhood Watch is a good idea, like, but I thought it was, it was a cruel but brilliant disgrace, sociological astroturf. <laughs> and w- w- there's an awful lot of that at the moment, we think that's community. That's not community. Community is where a woman rang my, uh, my mother when I, when I was away once and she was worried because somebody was around the, the cottage at home and uh, she said, I, I know it wasn't Father Brendan, she said, because he always parks his car over to the left with the bonnet pointing. <laughs> I mean, she was watching every move I made. You'd want to be a fairly good priest like to get past this. <laughs> I tell you, priests were much better behaved when we had communities like that. But she was making sure nobody broke in. Mm. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah. So we, we have dispensed with so much of that and we've let ourselves, we've left ourselves naked and alone before these master flatterers, before these, these people who have got to know us so quickly, whose knowledge of human nature is far greater and more unsentimental than ours. And they've convinced us of, you know, that we are, we are strong, we are independent, we are making up our own minds about everything. Nobody's telling us what to do. Will you get away with that? For the love of God. But why are they telling us? You know, because we have to rely on whatever they're selling. Absolutely. So they exploit that part of us. Your needs are being manipulated all the time. I mean, you've all this choice in, 
in supermarkets, but how much choice is there? You know, the small businesses would tell you, like, you know, that they've been pushed out by the big supermarkets. I mean, how much choice is there? You know? Uh, how easy is it for, you know, good, let's say, artisan cheese and that kind of thing to get, to get a, a spot in the, in the supermarkets? And uh, you could go on about, on about this forever. I, I, th I think it's a fair question. I, th I think it's an, an absolutely crucial question to bring up here. In all this liquid modernity, let me tell you that there are superb ships plying these waters back and forward restlessly, and they are flying the skull and crossbones, the black flag. Some of the best organized operations on the face of this gigantic cultural ocean, this restless, turbulent ocean, are not friendly to anyone. And they, they're, making, they're making money no matter what happens. I'm not anti-business, by the way. I'm not a communist. <laughs> I'm not anti-business. We just, we, need, we really need to be aware of this stuff. I mean, America is the home of big business, and America, as early as, probably earlier, but this is how much I know, as early as Theodore Roosevelt, back over 100 years ago, uh, was desperately trying to grapple with the major corporations to reduce their power, so as to promote genuine business. Because the, the corporations were actually, in some ways, almost like communism. They were controlling everything. You know, they were controlling everything. I mean, if you can reduce the choice, if you can fix the prices, where's genuine business gone then? And Bauman, you remember Zygmunt Bauman, the man I referred to, the author of the phrase uh, liquid modernity? He talks about this, the atomization. Well, that's been talked about by others. I mean, as far back as Emile Durkheim, uh, who's hugely important sociology, psychologist back in the 19th century, French psychologist, he talks about, um, you know, it's just the, the huge rate, enemy, the breakdown of, uh, of, uh, the, the, the breakdown of, of laws, of customs, of beliefs. The, the rise of suicide in industrial societies, the atomizing, the, the loneliness. Bauman talks about the, 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 the feeling that people can't control. They don't see where power is anymore. With the breakdown of the nation state, the rise of superpowers, it's hard to see where power is anymore. Now, this happened in the United States over, well, 150 years ago, is it? Yeah, with the Civil War. The historian Shelby Foote said, before the Civil War, he said, the small things you see the changes in. Before the Civil War, which was the first modern war, arguably, and took something like 600,000 lives. Before the Civil War, uh, they uh, talked about um, these United States. After the Civil War, he said, the grammar was the United States. And I can, you know, the same thing may well be happening in Europe. I'm not, I'm not making judgments on that, I'm just saying be aware of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But with the breakdown of the nation state, you have an increasing lock, lack of, of control, or at least per perceived control by the, by the individual over, over power. Where does power lie? Sure, who knows who controls Europe? I mean, even in a country, who could ever name the, sec the, the civil servants in charge of the relevant departments? You could name the minister, but the minister wasn't the only powerful person in the department. Uh, the, the permanent servants of the department were powerful, certainly the top ones, and, uh, and all the more in Europe. 
mm. in the United Nations. Look, I'm not coming the conspiracy theorist on this. I, I don't have to. Jeepers, a conspiracy nearly would be welcome in that at least there'd be some order to the thing. I mean, it, it's... It, there are conspiracies, but they're, I, I suspect they're all too... They're all too, too shabby at their heart. They're, you know, making money and just basically holding the whole thing together. And yeah, the markets, those are the conspiracies. But uh, th that's a huge problem is people feel naked. People are, they are naked in front of these enormous powers. They're not able to name the powers anymore. I, I used to teach history and I'm fond of history and, and uh, tyranny is always interesting, of course, you know. Uh, Johnny Vegas summed up Sky Television, was it, as all sharks and Nazis. <laughs> But uh, one American journalist said he was interviewing this old Russian who had lived through the, the Stalin period and had lost a lot of his family in the purges. And he, he sat there with the tears running down his face. He did 10 years in the gulags, I think, 10 years in Siberia. Oh, my God, the, the way that man had suffered, like, you know. The American journalist said he was almost in tears during the conversation. And then at the end, he's, he, the, the old man said, but he said, we must put these things aside. He said, you can't be always thinking of sadness. And he poured a shot of vodka for each of them. And he said, now he said, let's drink to Stalin, our hero. <laughs> and he knocked back a vodka. Ah, go figure. <laughs> but <it's, laughs> and now we don't even have a name for who to blame. Hmm. Does that, do you see where I'm going here? We, we, Stalin would always blame someone under him, and then everyone knew who to blame. <laughs> Apparently in Nazi Germany they used to say the same stuff. Oh, if only the Fuhrer knew. They'd blame the locals for it, you know? And I think even in Tsarist Russia they used to say the same. If only the Tsar knew. But at least, they, at least they could say if only someone knew. They could say someone. Even in a tyranny you can say somebody. And increasingly now nobody. You, I mean, you ring up with a problem with things and it's hard even to get an answer sometimes. You know? Um, anyway, the, the, I'm not going to depress you by going on about this. I'm just saying Bork is of eternal relevance here. The little platoons. And, and Scr Scruton, who, who died just there lately, he, he perpetuated this, the conservative answer to this. Build up the family. We are social. We need each other. We need the family. It's not a luxury, and you need more than the nuclear family. You need your grandparents. You need the others. You need the other. Call them what you want. God is only a word. God's only a word. Devout you will say Hashem, the name. I think it's a great way of talking about God, the name. It's a cool name for God. I mean, the least we owe God is a cool name. Shouldn't we give him cool names? Yeah, yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we, should, we shouldn't sell them short, like, you know, we should give them cool names. The name. Uh, was it Einstein who talked, just said the mystery? And he had a very different take on God, okay, a different, different I admit that, uh, from what I know. Um, I think communion and liberation use that phrase, though, deliberately. You know the Italian university movement, Catholic movement? Uh, they, they refer to, often, playfully, they'll just refer to the mystery. You know, capital T, capital M. You know, the mystery says. <laughs> and again, I, th I think, you know, what's wrong with that? You know, shake the thing up a bit. And, 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 but the crucial thing here is that is this tremendous cry coming out of us. 
Oh, Lord, if you, if, if you could hear us, I'd say you'd shake in your shoes. If you could hear that starving cry coming out of the depths of your, of your being. The cry for the other, the cry for the beyond, the cry for, the cry for the name. The one. The reassurance. The answer. To be picked up and profoundly kissed and told, from the depths of divine wisdom, it'll be all right. As indeed we are in the sacred scriptures and in tradition. And here, believe it or not, and you're looking at me skeptically, and that's fair enough. Believe it or not, I am going to pull this together, okay? This unruly so-called talk, okay? It's all over the place. But I do know where I'm going, even if no, I have managed to convince nobody else of that. We do care what others think. Name it and you'll be a lot safer. We need what others think. We need their wisdom. I think we, it's a very hard thing for people with faith, especially in, in today, today's world, is to admit something like that. That is, of course it is. Yeah. We, we need their wisdom. We, we need our parents, even if they were hopeless parents. We need our bad parents. <laughs> we need to be bad parents. We need our grandparents. We need the old ones. We need society around us. We need nosy old Mrs. Murphy up the road <laughs> watching us through the curtains because hopefully when a psycho comes down the road with a hatchet some night, she'll look out the curtains and ring the guards. We need to have the human skill to have Mrs. Murphy as a good friend and neighbour and to be occasionally able to say to Mrs. Murphy, would you ever bugger off and leave me alone? And grow up and handle human relations instead of dealing with it with this ridiculous ruthlessness, cutting people off because they might encroach on our freedom. So the whole thing of having people who love you and are looking out for you is yes, they'll encroach on your freedom. They'll tell you how to build that wall. They'll tell you how to paint that room. And if, you're any, if you've achieved any maturity in your life, you'll turn around to them with complete love and complete solidarity and tell them, I'll empty this bucket of paint over your head if you don't leave me alone. <laughs> That's how a healthy family operates. We need communities that are intrusive and nosy and prescriptive and prejudiced and we need to be able to weigh into a, a parish meeting and fight gloriously with the parish priest like a real Catholic and stop going to Mass because uh, you've given up on religion because the parish priest is useless. Okay, a great Irish Catholic instinct with massive illogicality. Set the house on fire, you know, to spite him. <laughs> I'm not, by the way, saying stop going to Mass, okay? Not that I need to tell people now, because <laughs> no, no, they can't. Way ahead of you. We need to wade into the, that mess. And this is that modern art hates a mess. Modern architecture hates a mess. It's all about clean lines. It's all about antiseptic. It's all about, you know, and, and you know, some of it is attractive. I'm not downing it completely or anything like that, but, but there's a danger. Scruton used to talk about this a lot. You know, it forgets the decency of boundary, of architrave and door jam and doorknob and, and, and the way in which we lay out space. And this liquid modernity, you, you know, I, I mean, just consider, Bauman talks about this again, is the disorienting way in which we've conquered space and time to an extent, with the way in which, with supersonic travel. And, and, and this is more flattering unction to our souls than Shakespeare's word from another play. We're like, God. Absolutely, you know, fly to America in record time and die there instead of here. No problem. 
Maybe you won't smell as bad. Maybe they have it cracked over there. You're still a human being. So these things flatter us. They fool us. And instead of, the, instead of this flattery, we need to hear the voices. Scruton talks beautifully about this. Roger Scruton, a conservative English philosopher, died about a year ago. Did he? Or earlier this year, I think. No, earlier this Sorry, year. Sorry, early, early this year. A great guy with a lot of Irish friends. Uh, Vincent Toomey, Father Vincent Toomey, I think, would be a friend. Yes. Was a friend of his, yeah. Uh, Scruton talks about, you, you know, tradition comes from Latin. And as you know, our technical vocabulary is, is heavily Latin and Greek. Tradition, trans, as, okay, if you know in my look now, there'll be a professor of classics listening to this. Right, trans dicere, as I understand it, to speak across. Tradition. Tradition is the dead talking to us. The dead are always talking to us. My peasant ancestors believed that. And now we laugh at the ghost stories they told, but they were always talking to the dead. They thought nothing about meeting somebody dead out on the mountain at night. They were always <laughs> having visions, quite rightly. And that was sober-like. They were even better when they drink of them. The dead are always talking to us. They can see what we can't. And they're constantly calling to us, no, don't do that. We did that. This will end in tears. Oh God, he's done it. Yeah. And we're saying, ah, yeah, 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 no, don't, you're dead. You know, what do you know? Shut up. We've stopped the voices of the dead. It start, this started with the French Revolution in a way, you know. We've stopped the voice of the dead. We've spat on their graves, as it were. We've silenced them. We've said to them, you know nothing. You have nothing to say to us. But they do. We need to start listening to them again. We need to get into, I, I'm probably misunderstanding it because Chesterton was a genius. But uh, doesn't he talk about the democracy of the dead? Yeah, we need to get back again. The dead need to be present at our discussions. They are. Where do you think we get all our wisdom? Where do we get our parliament from? Where do we get all this from? We have, we have, our, we have a separate and independent country because of the dead, of those who literally died for that in Ireland, and they're talking to us all the time. Patrick Pierce, at the burial of O'Donovan Rossa in a famous speech said, I can't remember the exact words, he said, the English think that they've provided for everything. They think they've thought over everything, they've covered in every individuality. And the famous line is, the fools, the fools, the fools. They have left us our Fenian dead. And while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland unfree will never be at peace. Because Ireland was listening to the dead, to the tradition. In other words, it was a people. And you're a human being, which means you have a people. And they're talking to you all the time. I, you can make somebody do this. I'm, I'm just saying that things are bad. They're made bearable because materially the, the world has never been more comfortable, never been healthier, never been richer. Okay, this is true. I mean, it's a tremendous achievement of, of, of the modern ca capitalist world. And unfortunately, the more power the emperor acquires, the more embarrassing it is that he has no clothes. And we're not going to be thanked for saying it. So what am I going to say now? I, I, I told you before this began, I told you that I was going to, I was going to blow your mind with a, with, a, with a major insight here at the end and, a, and a, a plan for the future, okay? Because I'm not just going to spend my time giving out and saying, you know, 
Uh, you've all been flattered into, into a stupor by the modern age. You don't listen to tradition. You're all done and I'm not feeling the best myself, okay? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we need to be an armed camp. We need to start again. We need to subvert this. We need to start again being human and refusing to become cyborgs. We're human. We need, we need to reclaim that. We need to start being human, and being human means being social. It means being dyadically inclined. We need to start, we need to start working on relationships, discovering old skills of just getting on with people and sharing space with people, which is something we've had to rediscover again under the lockdown. And there may be more of this happening in the future. It might be as well to get better at it. Our ancestors knew how to share a very small space with other people without driving each other crazy. Okay, um, we need to rediscover these human skills and above all we need to rediscover the tremendous wisdom of the church. We need to let the church teach us about the ultimate other. Through her knowledge of human nature she will bring us to a knowledge of the nature of Hashem, of the one, of the man. That's where we need to be going. What do we need to, as part of this? What do we need? One of our parish priests famously said at a meeting, uh, a parish meeting where they were giving out to him about the inadequacy of the local national school, the local primary school, and he got sick of it. They kept at him and at him right through the meeting and he finally brought his fist down on the table and he said, I'm sick of this, he said. I'll build you a school, he said. I'll build you a blanking university. <laughs> and he got up and walked out. Got a great round of applause about <laughs> We need a university. Now it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't have to be a university, like, I mean, it could be a, a bit of an institute. But institute's a cool name. Mm -hmm. I mean, MIT's an institute. Yeah, institute, institute in a way sounds even more exclusive, doesn't it? It sounds it's, sure. Yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe Maynooth can do it, maybe the Priory Institute, yeah, the Priory Institute, maybe, maybe they could do it. What, what else is going at the moment? Torlus, Carlo? any of these places, maybe they, maybe they can do it. I don't know, okay, I'm not saying they can't do it. I don't know. I'm just saying we need it. 30 years ago when I was a seminarian in Rome, I was asking somebody, where is this Steubenville place? Because the most impressive young American priests and people I was meeting all seem to have gone to Franciscan University in Steubenville. And apparently it's still a small place. And it's not even in a particularly affluent town. I believe not, no. That place, I mean, I'm right in saying, haven't I, it's the birthplace of Focus. That's right, the yeah. major, it would be the American equivalent, English-speaking world equivalent of uh, communion and liberation. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a major uh, university movement. Catholic, oh, serious. Very serious Catholic movement. So, I mean, when, is, when are we going to do something in the islands of, of the island of, of saints and scholars? Okay, you know, when... Well, a few saints and a few scholars are still left. Okay, when are, we, when are we going to have our Blanken University? We need somewhere training people in genuinely thinking for themselves as Catholics. Because a Catholic should be superbly the person who is genuinely so independent. Who is a trained mind and a free, spole, a free spirit and who's thinking for themselves, because we are living in the freedom of the Trinity and of God. It will be all right, and that is our belief. 
we need somewhere that's going to be teaching us that. Do you remember how back in the penal times we had the so-called hedge schools and all that kind of thing? Now, I know the history of it is a bit more complicated than that. Called hedge schools because the wandering masters used to teach their students under hedges. Actually, probably more often in barns and places like that. And they used to teach them Greek and Latin. That was the education of the time. It was a gentleman's education. This is to peasant boys and girls. They teach them Latin. An ancestor of mine was a hedge school master. O'Malley out in, out, out in Caramore, outside Lewisburg. And I, I think we won't even call it the Institute. Father Gerard, I think we're looking here at the founding of a legendary Irish intellectual centre, uh, a Catholic centre, the Hedge. <laughs> but at least it's not the ditch, <laughs> which is where we are at the moment. Yeah. Okay. So we'll crawl out of the ditch into the Hedge. <laughs> And we're reassured, we're told by ecologists that hedgerows are very interesting places. Okay, there's actually a lot going on in your average hedgerow. So, I'm calling at the end of this talk for a school for scandal, for, for a school that will train irascible, how will I put it? I've always said the great thing about the Jews was that, was that they were such brilliant and briery people. You know, they were, they, they were indomitable. You couldn't shut them up. You know, so, as some Jewish scholar has said about the Talmud, it's just one long bickering conversation going on for thousands of years, right? And, and what I'm calling for here in this, we've seen the temple destroyed. Is that a fair analogy? Well, it's, it's useful to start with anyway. No, I think you're right. We're post the temple destruction. And you know, that was after that, you had the, you had the, the, the birth of the rabbinate. And the, and the synagogue really took off. You had synagogues before that, but it really took off because the temple was gone. And arguably the Pharisaic movement melded into the rabbinate and, and you, you, you had the rabbis. And a tremendous richness uh, de developed among the Jewish people who did not accept that the Messiah had come. Now I think in our sense the temple has been destroyed. We are, as Pius XI reminded us, on the eve of the Second World War, we're spiritual Semites. We need a yeshiva. We need a university, we need an institute, we need a hedge under which to meet and dispute and converse and consider and reflect and philosophize and above all coming to the queen of sciences to theologize. We need to argue and bicker and fight with each other like the medieval schools did. Okay, we need something that will attract the best minds for no pay and to working in horrible conditions and probably end up with no pension and dying in a ditch. How does that sound? Can we sell that, do you think? Attractive? As a career? <laughs> we'll advertise that in the Times. And I say to you at the end, but when I tell him he hates flatterers, he says he does, being then most flattered, let me work for I can give him his, his humour the true bent and I will bring him to the capital. When we finish training you at the hedge, you'll be led to no capital. You will not be led to your own spiritual slaying. You will be truly a free man or woman, fit to stand before the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Father Brendan, for a very enlightening and passionate talk. We'd ask you to like and subscribe, to share with your friends and family so that this little, this little initiative, this podcast, this Brendan option, and that our own little community here can grow as we go closer to Christ and to his kingdom.